This week on the show, we cover OpenBSD 7.4 release for you, making software last forever and what the implications for that are. A Dragonfly per process capability based restriction is out and we look at what that does. The HardenBSD September 2023 status report is what we also look at. Also, NetBSD as a Kubernetes pod is possible nowadays. Firefox hardening with Arc and Fox and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 531, Everlasting Software, recorded on the 26th of October, 2023. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow, find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hi, I'm your host, Benedict Kreuschling. And I'm Jason Tubner. Welcome. Jason and I are back in front of the well microphones and computer screens well i guess the latter happens more often than the, and halfway the across microphones, the world right <laughs> and uh people have been busy so we got a bunch of things in this week's episodes uh for example the headlines this week is openbsd 7.4 release big re- and, big release this one um mm-hmm. it's uh came out uh, only a few days before we uh, started recording this show. So um, it's hot off the press. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> let's look at some of the things that are in here. Uh, there's various kernel improvements. So we're going to step through this. It's just, we're not going to cover everything in this. Uh, you'll have to go. It's a on, long list. Yeah, yeah. You're going to have to go and release, read the release notes after this. But uh, we'll just touch on a few things. Uh, so on ARM64, show BTR and SBSS features in DMessage. Uh, new KQL system call reporting as uh, a map device tree read write and to unbreak root on soft raid. Uh, there's some WS cons uh, improvements as well. Uh, there's some unveil uh, unveil work uh, for the dump core into the current working directory. Uh, moving on to some open ARM64 use of deep idle states on their Apple M1, M2 cores and idle loop for suspend and resulting in power savings. Uh, update to the AMD CPU microcode if a new patch is available. And mm-hmm. a work around the Zenbleed AMD CPU bug. There's some SNP improvements as well. There's a rewrite of the PF sync in particular to improve locking to help with unlocking more of PF with the parallelization of the network stack in the future. The protocol remains compatible with older versions. Remove kernel locks from the ARP input path. Pull MPSafe ARP requests out of kernel lock. Remove the kernel lock from the IPv6 neighbor discovery and unlock more parts of IOCTL and the routing code in the network stack. There was some work done in the DRM, the Direct Rending Rendering Manager and graphics drivers so there was an update to the linux 6.1.55 driver and uh don't change end marker in sg set page uh, caused bad memory accesses when using page flipping on older lake and raptor lake cpus there was some vmm and vmd improvements uh allowed vmm guests to enable and use supervisor ibt 
suppress AMD hardware p-state visibility to VMM and guests, avoid use of uninitialized memory in VMD, a fixed, yep. fixed QCAL. Plenty of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> fixed QCAL2 base images when used with VMD multi-process device model. Inline pending interrupts the VMM IOCTL for running the vCPU, reducing VM latency, adding zero copy vector to VMD VIO block device. And they fixed a VM pause deadlock, so that's not there anymore. Uh, there was uh, numerous uh, user land feature improvements, uh, specifically around uh, ob- obviously updating a TZ data, as uh, you do with basically every release. Mm, uh, yeah. There was some cron and cron tab uh, work done as well, and also over WS cons CTL. There was uh, various bug fixes and tweaks in userland, uh, PAX and TAR, and CPIO. Uh, there was some work done on patch and FDisk as well, and Clang saw a bit of work as well. There was a significant amount of improvement in hardware support. Uh, the list is so long that uh, you should go and check that out after you've listened to the podcast. For your particular hardware that you are uh, running OpenBSD on or plan to run on. Yep, there's been a variety of wireless stack improvements and bug fixes. There's been installer upgrade and bootloader improvements, uh, specifically around the auto installer. So you can do a hands-off install of OpenBSD that goes hand-in-hand with Ansible or some other provisioning software to basically make ephemeral devices and uh, give you basically machines as you require them. It's a really, really good feature. That with NetBoot, brilliant. There's been a variety of security improvements as well. Uh, enable indirect branch tracking, IPT, on AMD64 and branch target identification, BTI, on ARM64 in both the kernel and in user lane. On the hardware that supports this feature, it helps enforcing control flow integrity by making sure malicious code cannot jump into the middle of a function. Uh, there's some work done on enable pointer authentication in user lane, pack. Uh, together with RecGuard, these two features protect against ROP attacks, compiler defaults for base Clang, ports Clang, and ports GCC, as well as some other non-C language family compilers in ports. These have been changed to enable these features by default. As a result, the vast majority of programs on OpenBSD and all programs in the base system run with these security features enabled. There were some changes to malloc. The shutdown program can now only be executed by a member of the new shutdown group. The idea is that the system administrators can now remove most users from the excessively powerful operator group, which in particular provides read access to disk device nodes. Using Unveil restricts patch file system access to the current directory, including subdirectories, tempter and file names given on the command line. Uh, There was some changes in the network stack as well. Uh, there's quite numerous amounts, uh, especially around the performance with TSO and LRO. Uh, so they're really good to go and check out. There's some new switches there uh, for your, depending on your device, uh, like IX. Uh, so uh, take a look there. Uh, down in the routing demons and other user land network improvements, there's a significant amount of IPsec support. Uh, the improvements were specifically around uh, route-based SEC tunnels, 
So this is something that I've been actually working with recently as we're re- revisiting our current uh, IKD slash VXLAN environment, moving over to these sec, t- sec tunnels because it makes the configuration of IKD and the network stack a lot more simplistic. It's a lot easier to manage and it's a lot easier to understand how it all glues together and it's quite performant in itself. So that's that's one one key feature that was I've been looking forward to seeing and um, we're starting to push that out into production as we speak. Nice. Uh, there's some support to verify X509 chains from CERT payloads. Uh, like these got a fix to do not leak a file descriptor if open memstream fails while trying to enable child SA. While trying to verify an ED, e, ECDSA signature in IKD, uh, correctly detect failure of DR encoding with I2D, uh, and there's more around IPsec as well. IPsec also has SEC4 uh, integration, so not only with IKV2, you can also use IPsec to uh, use SEC. Uh, in BGPD, uh, first added first version of FlowSpec support. Right now, it's only an announced FlowSpec rules is possible. Rework update message generation to use the new iBuff API instead of the hand-rolled solution as it was before. Improve the extended BGP CTL parser to handle commands like BGP CTL show rib uh, detail. So it also adds various FlowSpec specification commands. Introduce Semaphore to protect intermittent RTR session data from being published to RDE. RPKI client saw some changes. A 30 to 50% performance improvement was achieved through LibCrypto's partial change certificate validation feature. Already, oh, that's significant. Yeah, yeah, that is significant. Already validated non-inheriting CA certificates are now marked as trust. This way, it can be ensured that leaves delegated resources are properly covered and at the same time, most validation paths are significantly shortened. In SMTPD, swapped link or filter arguments to avoid ambiguities with usernames containing a pipe character. Bumped SMTPD filters protocol version. Fixed potential truncation of filtered data lines. Allowed arguments on no wall. Uh, there was many other changes in various network programs and libraries, uh, including DIG, NDP, ARP, Unwind, Slack D. There was some work done on the IF config. Uh, RelayD and CARP had a bit of attention as well. And SPAMD. People are still using SPAMD. Uh, I think I had a use case for it the other day. Um, I uh, wish uh, a lot of other tools had the SPAMD integrated. Uh, TMAX improvements and bug fixes you know, for pass-through. Don't write to clients attached to different sessions. Add a format to show if there was unseen changes while in a mode. Discard mouse sequences that have the right form but actually are invalid. Add "-c to run shell to set working directory. Add detach on destroy previous and next and set the visited flag on last window when linking sessions. Libre SSL version 3.8.2 saw a lot of work. Uh, there's just way too much to go through here. In the podcast, we'll look at the security fixes. That's uh, pretty relevant 
uh, disable TLS v 1.0 and TLS v 1.1 in libssl so that they may no longer be selected for use. BN is prime EX and BN is prime fastest EX. Refuse to check numbers larger than 30, 32 kilobits for primality. This mitigates various DOS vectors. Restrict the RSC 3779 code to IPv4 and IPv6. It was not written to be able to deal with anything else. There was uh, some extended portable changes with inside LibreSSL as well. Uh, there's uh, new features, uh, including added support for truncated SHA-2 and SHA-3. Uh, the BPSW primarily test performs additional Miller-Rabin rounds with random base to reduce the likelihood of composites passing. Allow testing of ciphers and digests using badly aligned buffers in open SSL speed using unaligned. And ED25519 certificates are now supported in OpenSSL CANREQ. And finally, in the OpenBSD 7.4 release is OpenSSH 9.5 and OpenSSH 9.4. Uh, there's potentially incompatibility changes. Uh, SSH keygen generate ED25519 keys by default now. So no big RSA keys. The ED25519 keys are much, much smaller. Uh, especially the public keys. Uh, they are very convenient due to their small size. Uh, ED25519 keys are specified in RFC 8709 and OpenSSH has supported them since version 6.5, which was released back in January 2014. The SSHD subsystem directory now accurately preserves quoting of subsystem commands and arguments. And there was also some incompatibility changes with SSH agent PKCS 11 modules must now be specified by their full path. Previously, DL Open could search for them in system library directories. There's a bunch of new features. Uh, the added keystroke timing obfuscation in the client uh, allowed forwarding of Unix domain sockets via SSH-W. Uh, added a match local network predict, predicate, infrastructure support for KRL extensions, and SSH key gens increase the default work factor rounds for bcrypt KDF used to derive symmetric encryption keys for passphrases protected by key files by 50%, uh, and a big list of bug fixes. So if you haven't already, go to the OpenBSD website, uh, check the release notes 7.4. And as of recording, there's also two errata patches out too. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we let the, uh, uh, yeah, we let people read the rest if they're interested in certain bits. Uh, it's a long list and you might as well uh, go over it uh, yourself. So yeah, uh, congratulations to OpenBSD for yet another timely and uh, quite uh, yeah extensive release, I would say. A lot of work has been going into it. And I guess in previous episodes, we recorded some bits and pieces here and there that were coming into that release. So now we have it available officially. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we, we sort of get feedback from viewers about uh, work that's going on. Uh, and through the mailing list. And there's also some of the stuff that we come across as we're, we're working through mm. snapshots. So 
it's yeah. always good to it's, it is always good to follow uh, snapshots at points in time that, that helps you understand what's coming through and uh, lets you make adjustments to your environment when you need to and know that you're not going to get any big surprises as it comes up. Uh, for oh, yeah, you can get excited about them, right? Like a new feature is coming that you look forward to and now it's available. So what better to upgrade to the new release to get that? All right. So our next piece here is about making software last forever. And it's also a long piece. So we uh, basically give you the uh, first few paragraphs and a bit of the end so that you know what's going on. And we kind of discuss it a little bit. So uh, this is from Dan Strude's uh, blog. I'm fairly sure that is. Yeah. And uh, it starts with how many of us have bought a new home because our prior home was not quite meeting our needs. Maybe we need an extra bedroom or wanted a bigger backyard. Now, as a thought experiment, assume you couldn't sell your existing home. Yeah, so if you bought a new home, you'd have to retire or decommission your prior home and your investment in it. Does that change your thinking? So further, imagine you had a team of five people maintaining your prior home, improving it and keeping it updated for the last 10 years. You'd have to accumulate an investment of 50 person years in your existing home or five people times 10 years just in maintenance on top of the initial investment. If each person was paid the equivalent of a software developer, will use 200,000K to include benefits, office space, leadership, etc., uh, you'd have an investment just in labor of $10 million. Uh, so 50 persons uh, per year times 200,000, uh, that's the calculation there. Would you walk away from that investment? The question is. So when companies decide to rewrite or replace an existing software application, they're making a similar decision. Existing software is retired or decommissioned along with its cumulative investment, yet the belief is that new code is always better than old uh, and that is patently absurd, as the argument here is. Old code has weathered and withstood the test of time. It has been battle-tested. You know, it's failure modes. Bugs have been found and, more importantly, fixed. So Joel Spolsky of the Fog Creek Software and Stack Overflow describes system rewrites in Things You Should Never Do, Part 1. That's a link to another, uh, or yeah, joelonsoftware.com, as the, quote, single worst strategic mistake that any software company can make, unquote. So continuing our home analogy, recent price increases for construction materials like lumber, drywall, and wiring, and frankly everything else, uh, should, according to Economics 101, cause us to treat our current homes more clearly. Similarly, price increases for quality software engineers should force companies to treat existing software more dearly. And lots of current software started out as C software from the 1980s. Engineers don't often write software with portability as a goal at the beginning, but once something is relatively portable, it tends to stay that way. Code that was well designed and written often migrated from mini computers to i386, from i386 to AMD64, and now ARM and Arch64 with a minimum of redesign or effort. You can take large, complicated programs from the 1980s written in C and compile/run them on a modern Linux computer or BSD or Unix, whatever, even when the modern computer is running architectures which hadn't been dreamt of when the software was originally written. Why can't software last forever? It's not made of wood, concrete, or steel. It doesn't wear out, rot, weather, or rust. A working algorithm is a working algorithm. Technology doesn't need to be beautiful or impress other people to be effective. Aren't technologists ultimately in the business of producing cost-effective technology? And so uh, there's a couple of uh, points listed uh, further down the blog, like um, 
making some arguments uh, for that, like maintaining uh, software as long as possible. And like maintenance is about making something lasting. Unfortunately, a maintenance is chronically undervalued, risks of replacing software systems and further sub uh, texts that uh, are too long to go into, but definitely worth a read. So um, now you may ask, hey, what does that have to do with the BSDs? And then it occurs to you, of course, well, the BSDs also have been around for a while and you might as well draw some analogies here. So... Of course, the BSDs have been around for a while and they have been maintained and ported to newer hardware as it came out. Um, so, yeah, in a way, as long as it's maintained by people, it keeps working and, yeah, it's been usable since uh, way back when and still today. Although, on the other hand, you have to also make uh, sure that it's still running uh, in a secure way right if new if, uh, bugs are found that are security related you don't want to maintain that old bug you want to fix it and be sure to have it uh, not exploit your system the other thing for me is performance like uh, some of these older things that uh, like the things colin percival found in the bootloader there were some uh really nasty like bubble sort algorithm one bubble sort algorithm from way back when there weren't so many elements to sort in that list. But nowadays, yeah, the list has grown over the years. And that, of course, if you want to maintain the old way of doing things, then that takes a while and that's showing in the boot time. And now that he has rewritten that part, it's much faster. So you cannot just maintain that software forever. You also have to occasionally rewrite certain bits and pieces. Yeah, but I don't think um, where this article is going was it's more about the wholesale changes that some projects tend to do. They go, mm -hmm. we don't like this, how this is this is working, so we're just going to cut it here and then just start something totally new. And oh yeah, the radical yeah the two the two uh, projects that come to mind are GNOME. Uh, they had GNOME two, and then the big change to GNOME three, and then all the problems that came with that, and then also mm -hmm. the the um, you know, X is no longer good enough and Wayland is where everybody wants to go. And that, again, a whole new system that's that's been built instead of trying to fix what's there. I mean, sometimes, yes, there is times where you've got software that is just like trying to make it fit and work uh, is just no longer viable. Uh, that, that can be, that you know, that sort of stuff has to be done and, you know, changed out and then moved on and progressed on. But, you know, the BSDs, you're very right there. The BSDs um, still hark back to their foundations and their roots and they've, they've been tuned, tweaked and made secure as time has gone on. Uh, but they still, you know, have a resemblance of what they started out as. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's what stability is all about is is having that foundation and building on that foundation and moving forwards but not in a absolute you know totally different direction yeah i also read another article uh on the acmq the other day by paul henning camp where he um argues basically that or shows that um when you when you do these uh configure make make install steps especially in the configure steps it checks for a lot of old fortran compilers being there and of course nowadays that's just not the way where people how people program anymore but the checks are still there that go through the configure step and that takes time and all these compatibility shims that are still there to make sure that 
it's still compatible to that old way back when version. That, of course, adds over time maintenance overhead and, and headaches for people to, uh, you know, yeah, maintain that software. And the problem there is if you don't cut certain pieces from it, then you have to drag it around forever, like uh, some, yeah old uh, stuff that you keep in your closet no one wants to uh, look into that anymore yeah uh, i mean you know valid ones is uh, like uh, libreassl where they've cut out old vulnerable versions of tls you know 1.0 and 1.1 there there's no reason for them to be around any longer and you know to prevent people from shooting themselves in the foot removing some things like that is uh something that is needed from a safety point of view um so that you know that's a valid a valid change and and direction it's like yeah you can't leave something set in stone and expecting it something it's it's not like our old computers of the 80s where they weren't connected to the internet so you know nothing much could go wrong uh so yeah. you, you could you could keep it like that but uh yeah the, the modern era there is there is sound reason to change things but there's no sound reason to wholesale change things <laughs> Yeah, I'm also uh, in the in the camp of have evolutionary change instead of revolutionary change, right? Not these big bang changes, but occasional small big bits and pieces there. Because you also have users that need to work with the software, with the new software, and that needs training and, uh, yeah, you know, getting used to many of these uh, newer systems. And that is also a lot of overhead that, of course, is not uh, free and some people say, oh, I like the old system. Why can't we have it back? And yeah, that also, you know, affects productivity and uh, motivation. And some people just jump ship and move somewhere completely else where they have their old uh, software around. So that's, yeah, certainly many of the uh, considerations you have to do when you make these drastic software changes rather than small incremental uh, behind the scenes changes. Yeah, so the, the summary here reads, maintenance mostly happens out of sight mysteriously. If we notice it, it's a nuisance. When road crews block off sections of highway to fix cracks or potholes, we treat it as an obstruction, not a vital and necessary process. This is especially true in the public sector. It's almost impossible to get government uh, governmental action on or voter interest in spending on preventive maintenance, yet governments make seemingly unlimited funds available once we have a disaster. Yeah, that's true. We are okay spending a massive amount of money to fix a problem but consistently resisting spending a much smaller amount of money to prevent it as a business strategy this makes no sense and they listed the open mainframe project that they uh, link also to uh, estimates that there's about 250 billion lines of COBOL code running today in the world economy and nearly all COBOL code contains critical business logic companies should maintain that software and make it last as long as possible but yeah where are the COBOL programmers when you need them? Well, there's plenty of jobs going out there with big zeros attached to them uh, for some COBOL work. Sure, yeah. Okay, that's pretty much the article, and we have everything up and running there. Um, yeah, and we would look forward to any comments you would have. Uh, send it to feedback at bsdnauto.tv so we have uh, maybe some viewpoints that we didn't cover. time for the news roundup it is and dragonfly bsd per process capability based restrictions have turned up 
kernel uh, add per process capability restrictions. Uh, so this is from Matthew Dillon on the mail list back on the 12th of October. Uh, this new system allows user land to set capability restrictions, which turns off numerous kernel features and root accesses. These restrictions are inherited by subprocesses recursively. Once set, restrictions cannot be removed. Basic restrictions that mimic an unadorned jail can be enabled without creating a jail, but generally spe speaking, real security also requires creating a true-rooted file system topology, and the jail is still needed to really segregate processes from each other. If you do so, however, you can, for example, disable mount, unmount, and most global root-only features. Add new system calls and a manual page for syscap get and syscap get set. Add syscaps.h. Add the setcaps user land utility and manual page. Remove priv9 and privcheck infrastructure, replacing it with a newly designed caps infrastructure. The intention is to add path restrictions lists and similar features to improve jailless security in the near future and to optimize the privcheck code. Mm -hmm. So there's a yeah there was a fair fair well there was a significant amount of uh, files that have been touched in uh, part part of this actual uh, bit of work that's been done so uh, it's it covers a, a big subsection of the operating system in Dragonfly BSD and yeah we like to cover uh, all the BSDs and we don't hear as much from Dragonfly BSD so if you have news there that maybe of interest to other users, then let us know so we can include it in future episodes. Uh, we also have news from the Hardened BSD project. They have a September 2023 status report for us. And Sean Webb writes, uh, the Hardened BSD 14 stable build infrastructure is back online. A new package build is running and he apologizes for the audit and appreciates the patience. So his wife and uh, he are uh, investigating some potential opportunities to purchase a home and plant uh, their roots in Colorado. Oh, nice. There's a chance they might significantly... There's a chance they might significantly accelerate their plans at purchasing a home, moving the date from around June 2024 to even potentially November or December 2023. That's fairly close uh, to this recording okay so should things go the way they are thinking they might the downtime for the hardened beast infrastructure would be limited to a single weekend perhaps even a single saturday okay we would uh, they would like to ask for more public mirrors please reach out uh, to netops at hardenbsd.org if you would like to mirror their installation media and os update artifacts and this may be especially useful in case they find unexpected dead trees in the metaphorical forest of purchasing a new to them home okay so in hardenbsd source repo they have a conditional in the virtual memory subsystem pertaining to a uh, pax no exec inspired strict uh, write or execute implementation they suspect there may be one or two more conditionals to double check and second is the output provided by the newverse shell uh, script build should be more correct okay they list also news in the ports tree. Uh, first time submitter Shion Yorigami provided a fix for lang slash GCC AUX. Uh, Shion Yorigami provided a fix for security pi cryptography. Sean Webb himself patched ports uh, Pudrier HBSD to take into account the hardening of the VFS lookup 
cap dot dot and VFS lookup cap dot dot non-locals to CTL nodes. All right. Parts management slash package is now built with uh, position independent executable and link time optimization, uh, the boost lips building now, as well as the math sim engine ports. Okay, great. The default version of LLVM and ports was bumped from 15 to 16 because they built base system libraries with LTL. The default minimum ports LLVM version needs to match the base LLVM version. Okay, great. Additional infrastructure info the rsync service must move to a new VM to account for. To a, for the additional 14 stable build artifacts, they hope to deploy the Tor Onion service endpoints for the 14 stable build infrastructure this week. And they also worked on a bit of HBSD FW forward porting the changes to its HardBSD 14 stable feature branch. Uh, Sean is hoping to get a new build out soonish, but it's indeed taking over, uh, taking longer than originally anticipated. And we still have a number of ports that are broken. Graphics, sane dash backends being broken, prevents editors LibreOffice from building. Uh, John is hoping they can get some help from the community in fixing broken ports and really appreciate those who contribute, no matter the form or contribution, code patches, advocacy, funding, documentation, etc. It's all equally important and very much appreciated. All right, there. Good luck with moving into a new home, and uh, I guess we'll have more news when the next uh, status report from HeartBSD comes out. Don't forget uh, the shout out there for anybody that has the infrastructure to uh, host uh, a secondary mirror, mirror location for them. Yeah, if you can help, then definitely reach out to them and uh, offer your help. That's certainly appreciated. Uh, the next story is from. Emil's blog, uh, imil.net, uh, NetBSC as a Kubernetes pod. Emil had to do it. So here's how to run a NetBSD micro VM as a Kubernetes pod. First thing is to modify the startup script. So there's going to be a lot of code in this. So suggest looking at the link in the show notes to follow along uh, with this particular story. Oh, I'm just going to touch on the bits between all the code snippets. So yeah, that's why it'll sound a bit weird as we go along. First thing is to modify the startup script from the previous article. So there's a link there in order to add Docker style networking, i.e. port forwarding from the host to the micro VM. This is done using host FWD flag in QEMU's net dev parameter. In the previous experience, we map the kernel and the root image from the, the host using Docker's dash V parameter. And while it's possible to map files from the host using Kubernetes volume, we will bundle NetBSD these files into the Docker image to make things easier. Please refer to MKS MOLNB documentation to learn how to produce minimal Nginx micro VM. It's a bit more code. Then once the image is created, export it to a tar archive in order to add it to the cluster. I won't upload small BSD images to a public repo just yet. I have bigger plans. So for now, I'll just make the images available to containerd as cached ones. Warning, it took me way too long to understand the image tagged with latest won't be cached and then will be fetched no matter what. So tag your image accordingly. There's a lot of home lab Kubernetes all-in-one clusters out there. I picked one that worked out of the box on the GNU Linux Mint system I'm using. 
micro K8s. Let's import the small BSD image. To spare some time, I did the classic alias. So it's got alias code there for the shell. Uh, and now the real deal, here's the pod manifest. Basically this does the same as the Docker command line. Note that image pull policy never key value as we don't want the container runtime to try and fetch the image outside. We could have written an, a deployment and I actually tried it. It works, but for the sake of simplicity of this blog post, we'll keep it as simple as a single pod. We expose the port 8080 from the container, which in turn is forwarded by QEMU with the host forward parameter. In order to make the pod surface available, here is the associated service. Here again, we expose the port 8080. We can join the two as a single YAML file by separating both definitions with a dash 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 indicator to indicate that it's a YAML file and they invoke K apply. And here we go. And then there's the status output and the service that is running. So the moment of truth, pointed a call to 8080 on the host and bingo, welcome to Nginx on NetBSD on Docker on Kubernetes. Ooh, that's uh, interesting, but good that it's working. It's good to see people playing around with it, not just, you know, trying to, you know, follow the typical Linux documentation, but actually thinking outside the square and seeing what else can be done with the other operating systems out there. Yeah, especially uh, since it's becoming more and more uh, yeah, prevalent, I would say. But yeah, not the only thing around. Okay, next up is another article by Celine. We have uh, dataswamp.org and we found the article there to be interesting, so we included it here. The Firefox hardening with Arkenfox. So Celine writes in her introduction, uh, Dear Firefox users, what if I told you it's possible to harden Firefox by changing a lot of settings? Something really boring to explain and hard to reproduce on every computer. Fortunately, someone did the job of automating all of that under the name Arkenfox. Arkenfox design is simple. It's a Firefox configuration file, or precisely a user.js file, that you have to drop in your profile directory to override many Firefox defaults with a lot of curated settings to harden privacy and security. Cherry on cake, it features an updater and a way to override some of its values with a user-defined file. Ah. This makes Arkenfox easy to use on any system, including Windows, but also easy to tweak or distribute across multiple computers, like in a company, for example. So she links to both the user.js GitHub project page for Arkenfox and the user.js Arkenfox documentation. So the setup, official documentation contains more information, but basically the steps are the following. First, find your Firefox profile directory, open the about colon support in your browser URL bar and search for an entry name profile directory, download latest Arkenfox user.js release archive as the second step. If the profile is not new, there's an extra step to clean it using scratchpad-script-arkenfox-cleanup.js, which contains instructions at the top of the file. Then save the user JS in the profile directory. Fifth is to add the update sh shell script to the profile directory so you can update user.js easily later. And on number six, you create the user overrides JavaScript in the profile directory if you want to override some settings and keep them. The updater is required for the override. The configuration itself. 
Basically, Arconfox disables a lot of persistency, such as cache storage, cookies, history, but it also enforces a canvas of fixed size to render the content, reset the preferred language to English only, that defines which language is used to display a multilingual website, and many more changes. You may want to override some settings because you don't like them. In the project wiki, you can find all Arconfox overrides with the explanation of its new value, and which value you may want to use in your own override. She links to the wiki, of course, as well at this point. For instance, if you want to re-enable the cache storage, the following code can be added to user override.js, and she provides these. So that's browser.cache disk enable true and privacy.clear and shutdown.cache set to false. Okay. She has a couple tips here. By default, cookies aren't saved, so if you don't want to log in every time you restart Firefox, you have to specifically allow cookies for each website. The easiest method I found, uh, or she found, is to press Control uh, Capital I, visit the Permissions tab, and uncheck the default permissions relative to cookies. You could also do it by visiting Firefox Settings and search for an exemption or exception button in which you can enter a list of domains where cookies shouldn't be cleared on shutdown. By default, entering text in the address bar won't trigger search anymore. So instead, using Control Capital L to type in the bar, you can use Control Capital K to type for a search. What about extensions? Arconfox Wiki recommends to use uBlock Origin and skip redirect extensions only with some details. Uh, she agrees that they both work well and do the job. It's possible to harden uBlock Origin by disabling third-party scripts uh, or frames by default and giving you the opportunity to allow per domain globally some resources that is called the blocking mode. She found it to be way more usable than noscript.js. Uh, she concludes, I found that Arkenfox was a bit hard to use at first because she didn't fully understand the scope of its changes, but it didn't break any website even if it disables a lot of Firefox features that aren't really needed. This reduces Firefox attack surface and it's always a welcome improvement. Going further, Arkenfox user.js isn't the only set of Firefox settings around. There's also BetterFox, thanks to PRX, uh, which provides different profiles, even one for performance. Uh, she didn't try any of these profiles yet. Arkenfox and Betterfox are parallel projects and no forks. It's actually complicated to compare which one would be better. Okay, I didn't know about these projects. So that's certainly uh, something I should check out on a rainy day. Mm, Firefox is the uh, privacy, privacy browser for the general population. Uh, this just takes it to the next level. Uh, for privacy. So, yeah, interesting here. BSD Now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud, so that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what data is duplicated so that bandwidth can be saved. It then assembles your data into compressed blocks, encrypts them with your local private key that never leaves your system, and then uploads those encrypted blocks to the cloud. So even if someone is able to obtain your backed up data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code to make sure that it does what we say it does. Tarsnap also does bug bounties if you find errors in the code. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse to not have good backups. 
go to tarslab.com to learn more. Okay, a lot of people look forward to the feedback and questions section and today we have a couple of feedbacks. Uh, and if you want to provide your own, then send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv. It could be anything like show topics the, that we should cover that you found or some stories from the BSD world, questions, comments, anything fits in this category. First one is a random listener. Yep. About a, uh, another podcast. Yeah, so a random listener wrote in. Uh, Hello, thanks for the show. I've been listening for a couple of years now and the show just keeps getting better and better. My question is, are there any other podcasts that you listen to or know about that cover similar topics as BSD now, such as BSD or other operating system podcasts, or perhaps some programming podcasts? Thanks. So JT has put his hand up straight away uh, (laughs) and uh, he has given himself a shameless self-promotion of other shows he produces. Uh, This includes Ask Noah Show, uh, which is a Linux and open source focused uh, show. Uh, The links for these shows are actually in the show notes, so uh, go and have a look. Uh, There's uh, Open Source Voices, which is an interview show with open source people and the Opinion Dominion discussion show around tech and open source. There's a lot of other great shows out there. You'll just have to search around for all of them. Uh, but here are some. Uh, these are all the shows by Jupiter Broadcasting which is, and the Level 1 show, uh, the Changelog, uh, Real Python, Free Code Camp podcast, and the CPP podcast. What podcast do you listen to, Benedict? Uh, so that's totally not BSD, although there was once a mention of OpenBSD, uh, the Tim Ferriss show, which is I've been listening to quite a while. So it's not just uh, technology. It's also, um, yeah, mostly interesting people in terms of, you know, either from financial or health or um, what else, uh, personal improvement or uh, like tips and tricks for your daily life to to try out so that's always interesting even if you don't um know that person it's always kind of interesting what kind of approaches people take uh to life and other than that i'm not not too much of a podcast listener it turns out um yeah i don't have much in my oh no wait there's another one uh the gary v audio experience i think it's called yeah uh, that's from gary vaynerchuk uh entrepreneur and recently has a lot of uh, good tips like in general for younger people trying to start their own business or um, having some problems like in the pandemic for example or during the uh, yeah economic downturn so he has a bunch of life uh, experiences that he can uh, or is ready to uh, yeah tag along or uh, like conference recordings from talks he gave like keynotes and stuff that's that's really all. <laughs> yeah, um, for me, I've got quite a number of of podcasts. Uh, there's obviously BSD now. Before I was a, <laughs> a presenter on BSD now, I uh, was also a listener, uh, and I still do listen to them because uh, yeah, I like to hear here. what's happening when I'm not <laughs> actually producing the show. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's also uh, 2.5 admins with uh, our previous co-host ah, Alan Jude. Uh, of course, that's that's really good. Uh, probably not safe for work. 
uh, playing that. Uh, this oh, is there cursing? Oh, this, this, this. But but it, it's justifiable. So I should add that to my podcast list now. <laughs> <laughs> um, another not safe for work one is late night Linux. Uh, they uh, you know, they review news uh, from a Linux perspective uh, and basically give their spin on it. Uh, it's quite an interesting one. Uh, they do use some some colourful language in there, but you know they're from from Europe. Uh, the UK and Ireland, so it gets quite interesting mm. and heated at times. It's quite funny, actually. So uh, that's one to go and check out. And there's other ones from the uh, late night Linux family, which includes the Linux downtime, Linux after dark, uh, and Linux matters. Um, other tech podcasts I listen to on a regular basis. Uh, there's Smashing Security. That's a good security one. It's uh, a bit of a, a lighthearted look on security. Uh, another one from from Ireland is uh, Linux Lads. Uh, if you're an Australian, uh, there's a couple of uh, tech journalists here that write, uh, create a podcast called Vertical Hold. Uh, for you network buffs out there, there's one called Packet Pushes. Uh, there's a full feed there, so uh, probably go and check that out. There's there's things you can skip through. Like I, I mainly listen to Network Break and uh, IPv6 uh, component of that. It just keeps me in tune with what's happening in the network space from a work perspective. Um, back uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Oxide Computing put out a, a two-season podcast called On the Metal. Uh, which interviews quite a number of, uh, I suppose, uh, popular, pe- popular people from a tech perspective that have done a lot uh, in the computer industry uh, as it's come through from a software and a hardware perspective. So it sort of got their feet wet and now they uh, have another podcast called Oxide and Friends, which is uh, recorded weekly and quite a good a uh, significant amount of uh, discussion points uh, come up on that podcast. So that's a, a regular release, uh, which okay. is the sister podcast of On The Metal. Uh, there's Advent of Computing. That's another uh, good one from for history buffs that really want to get into some of the really edge cases of uh, uh, computing history. Um, there's a couple of other Linux ones. Uh, there's the Linux experiment. Uh, that's That's... A good one uh, from a uh, you know just a, a casual look of the Linux space, uh, and then the obviously the Ubuntu uh, security podcast. So I mean that's not all the tech ones I listen to. I probably like go on for another three hours just going through my podcast yeah, list. Just- <laughs> are many of those just audio only or also video? No, they're all audio only. I have it on Pocket Cast on my phone. So, yeah, I, I just I get a bit of time when I'm cycling to work or, um, you know, when I'm just laying there and I can't sleep at night. Uh, yeah, that was my next question. When do you find the time to listen to all of these? <laughs> because these typically are an hour at least, in a minimum. Yeah, and I don't use any uh, speed up. You know, some people listen to podcasts at 1.5 or 2 times speed. I don't do any of that uh, because I think it sort of goes against with what the people that produce those podcasts are trying to achieve. So, um, mm. yeah, that's I, I listen to them how they should be listened to. So, Yeah, I know there's some podcast software that can cut out these small pauses between when people speak to just remove those and it still sounds natural. Um, but, yeah, in general... 
I also think the original audio should be uh, preserved and the original speed uh, as it was. Yeah, I mean that's you know that's what the the podcast is 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 about. It's it's not to be a clean uh, point, you know, a, a, a clean depiction of uh, somebody there, you know, discussing uh, certain topics. It's it's the whole thing that makes that podcast is those delays. You know, some people have the ums. You know, I'm probably guilty of oh, that yeah. too. And <laughs> you know, that's what makes a podcast. That's what makes it real. Uh, with you know, yeah, it's a conversation. Yep. And we just record it like <laughs> you would have it in a in a real life scenario without recording. You also have these like interactively. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for these for the list and for uh, many of the inspirations. If you have a favorite uh, podcast that you want to let the world know about, then send it to us, and we'll be happy to uh, do another listing in a future episode. Uh, then next we have Dante with a thanks. Uh, Dante writes, "Hey guys, thanks for covering my blog post on BSD. Four months of BSD. Yeah, we are welcome. I like your comments near the start about sounding like a prison sentence. <laughs> I really didn't know what else to call it and keep it simple. I may change it so it sounds more natural. Haha. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, it. It recently it picked our interest that that title." Uh, I appreciate you taking the time to read and share my post. I've never heard of your podcast before until now. I think it's interesting reading the latest in the BSD space. If I may make a suggestion, though, I think reading the whole blog post may drain users out. Yeah, sometimes um, what I would do instead is highlight some sentences and sections that you want to cover from the posts and then discuss them with your thoughts. I'm surprised you haven't heard of any of the software I mentioned in the post. Krita uh, uh, and stuff is like KDE Suite alternative to the GNU-based GIMP applications, which I assume should work better on BSD as GNU has more incentive to support Linux. Keep up the great work. Yeah, thanks, Dante. And yeah, sometimes we have that, like, uh, remember the old slash dot effect where a website is down because a lot of people go to that site all of a sudden. And if you haven't known about BSD now before, I mean, we are not that big as the slash dot effect by all, by no means. But you, you probably wonder where all these visitors suddenly are coming from after we have published a recording of a certain website, right? Yeah, that can happen. And I mean, people get also to know that blog and maybe you have follow-up posts about the BSD. So it all keeps uh, the knowledge in the, in the ecosystem and you get a couple more uh, readers for your blog. I mean, that's perfectly fine for you as well. Yeah, and also, you know, uh, Dante made the suggestion of highlighting some of the sentences and sections. Uh, we try to do that uh, where we can. He'd be surprised how much stuff that JT has to actually cut out of the podcast as well. Yeah, we record probably more than will end up in the episode. Yeah, so, you know, sometimes um, there's sections that we're really close to uh, from a development perspective or we have, you know, uh, covers, we cover that in our own work. Uh, we tend to you know break that down a bit more and have a bit more of a general discussion on it uh, but we try to communicate as a lot of a lot of information across to the listeners because a lot of people actually do listen to the podcast in their car so they don't have time to sit there and and uh, read certain release notes but they certainly have time to listen to us talk about those release notes yeah and then maybe later read the whole uh blog or article as, as they find it interesting enough 
All right. Lars um, has yep, written in. Uh, so, uh, hi, team. Google appears to be working to smoothly exploit its position in the browser market to become gatekeeper for the World Wide Web by rolling out WEI, a new form of DRM. There appears to be little to no pushback at a level which can influence Google yet. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Since so much of the desktop is nowadays centered around the World Wide Web, what are the implications of WEI affected WWW for the ongoing future of the desktop BSD? Best, Lars. And he's got a, uh, a few citations there, so um, just check out the show notes for those particular links. What's your take on it, Benedict? So um, that's on the Vivaldi browser's website. So of course they are concerned about competition there. I haven't looked at it too much, um, to be honest, what the web environment integrity is and how it uh, affects people. So it's if it's like DRM for for books or for like uh, you know videos, movies. Um, which has also some kind of uh, bad implications because, yeah, that has been discussed in, in the past and it's still there. It protects, of course, the authors, but it could also be misused. And if that's similar to applied to the web, then I think that's not, but I can't at, the, at this point uh, tell much about it without going a bit deeper and read about what the issue is. Yeah, I I have, you know, it, I can see both sides of this, but, you know, being typical Google, I don't see it sticking around. If they can't make this, you know, work within two years, they'll dump it. So um, I'm not too concerned about it yet, um, but, you know, watch this space. Google can push push hard if um, it gets a lot of traction. Just look at the Chrome browser, for example. You know, there's no chance of them dumping that, but, uh, um, you know, Google Reader. They were quite happy to dump that, even though there was a loyal following with it. Yeah, I mean, the web has always been around or about open standards. Like everyone could access it. The browsers could implement the uh, the engine or the browser manufacturers could implement it. You weren't limited to a single uh, browser or a single environment to access the web. And many people have found that freedom to be good because they have it provides choice and also made the web possible as it is today, like making all these transactions and things we can do on the web nowadays rather than just read web pages. And that's pretty much it. And if that innovation or that freedom would have been stifled by that, then of course people would not like that and not uh, support this kind of thing. But again, I am totally on a, on a stretch here, not uh, clearly knowing what this is actually about but i'll definitely look into it and see if it's actually uh yeah that dangerous or how what the implications are of if that would be implemented but yeah thanks for making us aware about that if people uh listening to this episode have more knowledge about it or can explain it in different ways then we'll be happy to have a follow-up question uh send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv and last but not least, uh, YKLA uh, writes to us about transcripts. So that goes, I come from the FreeBSD Chinese community. Firstly, I would like to express my sincere gratitude for the tremendous efforts you have put into promoting FreeBSD. Thank you. 
that's kind of nice to hear from you. And uh, however, it's regrettable that different languages come with different worldviews. Uh, that's true sometimes. And the significant language barrier prevents us from gaining a deeper understanding of FreeBSD. This barrier also prevents us from directly listening to BSD Now. Uh, part of this is due to the government's restricted internet policies. In order to access BSD Now smoothly, we need to invest a certain amount of effort and resources into obtaining a special VPN. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, they would like to inquire whether there are any written transcripts available for BSD Now that people can read. This would allow us to translate and create a Chinese version of BSD Now based on these transcripts. Thank you very much for your assistance. And our producer provided some notes there. This is on the agenda of things to do. Hopefully, by the beginning of the next year, uh, he can start releasing these. There are a few things that need to fall into place first before he can start doing this. Okay, so there will be something coming in the next year. Even we don't know yet. Um, but I guess he has ways to, once he has the audio recording, to kind of produce transcripts from what uh, we both here recorded on the show. And that hopefully helps you uh, have a translated version of sorts, even though I'm not sure how <laughs> how that will sound. But if it helps you, definitely uh, try something in that area. Yeah, and I wasn't aware of that uh, that restriction uh, that you couldn't get BSD now uh, like any other people just downloading it and listening to the episodes. Yeah, we'd like to hear a bit more about that. Is it uh, where we distribute the podcast makes it hard? Uh, if it was put on a, a, say, a regular mirror, would that um, help at all? Uh, we'd like to hear your feedback if there's other formats um, that are outside just because, you know, a certain um, software as a service is being blocked by the Great Firewall. Uh, you know, maybe a standard mirror uh, of software, uh, if some audio files are put there, uh, may not uh, garner such attention. So, yeah, we'd like to hear uh, what what works and what doesn't um in your part of the world yeah because for us distribution methods can can be added or, or changed and as long as people have more access or more people can access that then yeah it is also good for us or having a wider audience that's listening perfectly fine if it's for us just a few more channels to put the final episodes into Okay, I think um, we should not leave you without mentioning our BSD Now Telegram channel. That's t.me slash BSD Now if you want to follow us. I think Tom has registered already. I haven't gotten around to it yet. Sorry. Um, but there's a couple people in there I hear that are already uh, talking about certain BSD Now related topics. Thanks for the reminder. I'll go there and register after this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I, I Sometimes... Uh, once the episode is done, I uh, don't remember it anymore. But yeah, this time I'm uh, making a mental note here to actually do that. Okay, uh, that's this. Everything we have for this week. Uh, thanks for listening, as always. And we'll be back with another episode next week, of course. Catch you later. <laughs>